Okay, so welcome. Uh, how many folks are new to the center here? Okay, how many, how many people are very new to insight meditation? Not so many. Okay, great. Um, so just a couple of uh, Thanksgiving questions. How many people are in town tomorrow? And no one has long travel? Tell people. Yeah. I do. I have to drive up uh, to my hometown of uh, Hanover, New Hampshire after the talk. It's all right. <laughs> I actually did a fair amount of research, and I think after 9.30, it's supposed to be okay. I think the best time to travel is 3 a.m. tomorrow morning. <laughs> um, So let me ask just a question. I'm going to give a reflection, but I want to ask before I get started so you don't have time to think about it. Uh, just a couple of people. If I ask you right now what you're grateful for, just let something come out. Just raise your hand and speak it. Don't think so much. The center being here. Okay. Grateful for the center. Good. Anybody else? My health. Your health. All right. Practice. Okay. Family. Family. All right. Good. Okay. So hopefully uh, at the end we'll have we'll have time to uh, to kind of have much more interactive personal sharings. But I would like to um, give a reflection on. Well, it's the day before Thanksgiving. So what better time to, um, to reflect on kind of what we're grateful for and also how gratitude and kind of correlate or related qualities are, you know, how they relate to, to the practice, to uh, what we do in a traditional uh, dharma or training center like this. So... Most of us probably know the history of Thanksgiving a little bit. Just traditionally, it was, you know, supposedly it was in, I think it was 1621, the first, uh, the first year that the pilgrims had landed and they made it through a season, and it was uh, the harvest. So it was a, a giving thanks for surviving, for being able to make it through a first year. So what happened in that, so in, in that, and then we celebrate that, thanksgiving, right? Thanks for what has been given. So we're going to explore what that is, the giving aspect. But there's actually two aspects that are very important, uh, that for me at least, and a lot of this will be personal as well, uh, and in terms of our practice. When there's giving, when there's receiving, there has to be giving, so the pilgrims were grateful that they had received, and everyone who shared a little bit in the beginning, they were receiving something that empowered their lives, right? Family, practice, having a place where you can do it, etc. And so to make that possible, something was offered. So the center is offered. Teachings are offered. Um, the, the connection of family is something that others offer us, and everyone's not just going you know, to the winds. In the case of the pilgrims, well, it was, it's kind of a natural symbiotic relationship because the skill of the, the beings to, to grow the, 
you know, and they got in the seeds, I guess some stories say they got, they got them from the Native Americans, so it was a symbiotic relationship with the natives that were here before, and they, they had the skill to, you know, to tend the ground and nurture the seeds so they could grow and they could have their corn and whatever else was harvested. So there was a, a bounty, they had skill, but also nature provided an offering. Conditions were there, the cause and conditions where they could receive and be grateful. So this, this holiday that we, you know, that we celebrate, and for how many people is it kind of like turkey and football and family and not so many people, huh? <laughs> so it's all that too. <laughs> and we can look into it as a, you know, how it got big and all this kind of, there's a lot of angles we can look at it. But if we look at this, this aspect of it, um, then I actually think it's the most dharmic, personal opinion, the most dharmic or uh, Buddhist, with a small b, <laughs> could be big, holiday of the year. Now, why do I say that? Well, just naturally. So when I was... Um, when I used to practice in Burma many years ago. And what people would do there was a tradition on your birthday to give. So there's this, this uh, offering quality. And when I went and trained in Asia, um, and I was a monk for some time, I had, I would, I had learned that the, the kind of the dharma, the path of practice was to to kind of get our ethical house in order, called like sila, it's called, and then be able to come and steady the heart and the mind, basic training, and then see clearly. So with sila, samadhi, and panya, or wisdom. See clearly so we let go and we can live a more free, uh, responsive life. Yeah? Be empowered by being present and learn from that. But when I got there and I was ordained, that it, the way that it actually was practiced on the ground, there wasn't just three things, there were four. So it was uh, dana. The first word was dana, sila, samadhi, and panya. And how many people know the word dana? So it means generosity. That's what it means. So why is this? Why was this put in practice before even doing? You know, keeping our house in order, and trying to create harmony in our outer conditions goes along with that. But why was it at first in, and before we try to train our hearts and minds through formal meditation? What would that be? Why? Because it's said that generosity opens the heart. It prepares it to, do, to be fruitful to do inner work. So I don't know if you've ever been very tight in your heart and your mind, very closed, and you tried to settle it. Was it as easy as when you were in a good space and your heart was open? I don't know. Look for yourself. So... Generosity is that which is said that opens the heart and prepares the ground so that doing the, the stuff of inner work can be more fruitful. And as I mentioned with the pilgrims and in our own situations as well, giving implies receiving. So you can offer something for there to be a, a strong and healthy symbiotic relationship, then giving has to be received Right? You can give something. If it's not received, it doesn't have the same effect, does it? And, you know, inefficiencies, when people give stuff and it doesn't get where it wants to go, it doesn't help people. That's, that doesn't, doesn't complete the loop. 
So in giving, there has to be a receptivity as well, and, and a receiving. And when this happens, then what happens, and relate this to our own practice and our own lives, what happens to our motivational structure for, for practice? So I know for me, and so this is, do we practice just for ourselves or do we practice for others? Do we practice as a way of cultivating our hearts and then naturally we express that in generosity and gratitude? These two work very closely together. So look at our own motivational structure. Why do you think you practice, cold people? Do you practice for yourself? Just, do you feel like you practice for yourself? Do you practice for creating the conditions where you can actually be in a more kind of kind, generous relationship with others too? Okay, so everyone's sort of nodding, both, okay. So I know for myself, and this is important because this is, this, is, this is giving and receiving, right? So I know for myself early on, my structure for practice and the motivation for my practice was both for myself and also very much for others because I, was pre- I had received a lot and that had actually enabled me to, um, to, to practice. So when I, was, when I went off to Asia, I spent the better part of a decade in Asia after I finished uh, college. I, I did that because I, had, I just had a small inheritance and I used that last me, it's like $5,000 and it lasted me for years practice in Asia. So I was, I was actually feeling like, oh, I've received something. And then I also wanted, because I received something and it was something that was empowering my heart, I, I naturally wanted to have that show up somehow. Someone's generosity had, had supported me. And something my mother told me actually when I went off to be a monk is, uh, and most people in my family were, I mean, were just general people were like, oh, okay, well, it, was, it, was bef- it, it wasn't so fashionable back in the 80s or whatever. Uh, I don't think it's that fashionable, but practice is more mainstream now than it was then. And certain members of the family were like, well, if you go become a monk, you might lose inheritance or something, you know, like that kind of attitude. But my mother told me, just, and it wasn't even negative, it wasn't necessarily negative, it was just, I didn't know what I was doing. My mother said, what you're doing is not just for yourself, but it's for all of us. So she was understanding that something was being uplifted through someone being devoted to really working with opening their heart and their mind in this way, through a spiritual practice. And that was incredibly important for me and what I carried with me to think, oh, you're actually doing this. You're holding something bigger in your practice, quite naturally. So this motivational structure has um, it's been an empowering force throughout different Buddhist traditions for a long time. So in the store, and, and through generosity, as a building a foundation for spiritual growth. So is anyone familiar with the, the kind of stories of the, what they call past lives of the Buddha, or the myths of the Buddha, what archetypal energies that, that uh, matured in the form of the historical Buddha, so these teachings came. So in the Jataka tales, there's stories of, like one was the Buddha in one of his past lives, he's called the Bodhisattva, which means someone who's going to become a Buddha, that he saw a, a starving, I think it was a tiger, or a tigress, um, with her cubs. 
And he couldn't stand seeing, seeing her suffering, so he actually offered his body. He gave his body to her so that her and her cubs could, could survive. And it was an example. So it's an archetype. It's a story, right? It's not, I'm not saying we should go offer our bodies to animals. But it's an, it's, an, it's an example of actually really tuning into something much bigger than us and then offering. And to this extent, it's the most extreme extent you can. He was offering his, his life so that others, others could live. So there's a powerful... And how many people are familiar in some traditions with like bodhicitta or, or, or aspects where you, you really intentionally think uh, that you're doing this and you, for, for a larger field of, of beings? People much familiar with that? So you don't have to be. It's very interesting because it's not, it's not about philosophy because I've, I've trained in different traditions and some who have grandiose thinking, it, it kind of gets pretty selfish. <laughs> and some who have what you might call small-minded thinking or just I'm doing this because I'm learning to take care of the present moment and get a little peace, then actually quite naturally there can be ripple effects that, come, that, that move out from that. So it's not about the philosophy, but it's actually about... Um, kind of living and learning a way that our practice is both for ourselves and others at the same time. And the Buddha gave a great teaching on this, which was called, uh, it was the teaching of the bamboo acrobat, where um, uh, there were these traveling, little small traveling circuses, and this was, a, this was an act, this is like 2,600 years ago, where there's two people, and one of them would climb up on the shoulders of the other and climb up some pole and then do some dance and come down. Uh, and they had a, a little argument about, about what's the best way to do this. Someone said, the best way to do this, for us to do this together, the best way is for me to take care of myself and you take care of yourself. That's the best way to do it. Okay? We can relate this to our own life. And the other person said, no, the best way to do it is you take care of me, and I'll take care of you. And so they didn't know. But it just so happened the Buddha was nearby. I don't know what he was doing near traveling circuses. But. So they went to the Buddha and asked him. And the Buddha said to the first person, you're right. Take care of yourself first. Hmm. And he said to the second person, you're right. Take care of the other first. And then he said, in taking care of self, you take care of other. And in taking care of other, you take care of self. And then he said, to tr- take care of yourself, you practice mindfulness. You said, do it a lot. Taking care of others, you need to have compassion, kindness, patience. And the two work together, obviously, because when you try to be patient and you're not feeling patient, how do you get patient? By watching your impatience. So you're using mindfulness, right? (laughs) So there's a natural symbiotic relationship. In practicing mindfulness, we have to be kind, don't we? We have to be compassionate with what's arising or it's not effective. So this is, to me, this is a very beautiful, balanced approach. And it speaks to the kind of the developmental power of generosity, which is learning to take care of a bigger field that actually nourishes our own hearts and minds. It's very easy, I think, to forget this. So it can be a very powerful teaching. And generosity, 
and gratitude, remember, they're kind of like two sides of a coin. Okay? There's the receiving and the giving, so they, they go together. So in our, in our own culture, and that's why I asked the question about what our motivation was, often there's a, there's a tendency to kind of a me-first culture. Isn't it? And the Buddha said right at the heart of suffering or optional suffering, the suffering that we create in our hearts and minds in relation to experience, not just the fact that things don't always happen the way we want them to, is this clinging to I, me, and mine, or selfishness, that that clinging itself is a deep cause of suffering. So just quite naturally, when we orient ourselves toward generosity and gratitude, we're loosening the grip of that, just very naturally. So does that mean that we shouldn't have, we can't have like self-interest first? Well, it can, it can, you can also get in a trap of like becoming like falsely humble. That doesn't work either. Gandhi had a great, uh, when Gandhi was, you know, he did all this incredible work for villagers in India, empowered them. And one time he was, he was interviewed and he was asked, well, you're such an incredible being helping all these people. Why do you do it? And he thought that he would say, oh, for everybody, I'm so selfish and humble. He said, no, no, I do it for my own cultivation. So it's, he, he wasn't going to get caught in the trap of false humility. So it's important to be able to, to see how the two work together, how being generous, but you have to really be generous and be grateful, actually helps our own hearts and minds. Okay? And when, this, when, when, this, when we do this and we start to incorporate it into our being, then we create um, what might be called virtuous cycles. So generosity and, and, a, and an appropriate receptivity, gratitude, they feed each other. And what's the opposite of that? What's a vicious cycle? Selfishness, anger, greed. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and the whole world sees clearly, nope, doesn't work that way. No, an eye for an eye, for an eye and the whole world goes blind, right? So that kind, of, that kind of reactive, so that's a vicious cycle. And we can know it in ourselves, the difference between a vicious cycle and a virtuous cycle in terms of how we're relating to our, to our lives. How much time do we spend complaining? <laughs> and how much time do we spend naturally, whether it's in words or just naturally, actually having a quality of appreciation and connection? So wishing it would be other than it is, trying to push away or just, just accumulate to fill a void, unchecked, that becomes a vicious cycle. Because others, other beings, become, in a way things that help us to, to achieve what we need to to try to, take when we're caught in that cycle. We don't have the same sensitivity to life, do we? We, we lose generosity and gratitude. So it's very important um, from a, like a spiritual developmental point of view to, to understand how, um, how virtuous cycles, how giving and receiving work together. 
I want to give a couple of um, uh, tell a couple of examples of my own experiments in uh, being generous. Because once I got these teachings early on, I was like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to just, and it, I didn't read it in a book or anything. I was like, I'm going to try to, uh, when I feel generous, I'm going to try to act on it. Okay, and I'll just give a few examples of when I think it worked, and then there's some traps too, <laughs> I found. So one example that worked really well was when I was in India, and this was in the 80s. Uh, I spent a few years in India. And I met someone who, I think was a physics professor, I think uh, Swarthmore. Yeah, and he was, he was Indian um, of origin, and he was, he was going from village to village to record some of the ancient music, village music, which is really beautiful, if you've ever heard it. And he, uh, he just had a really bad, he didn't have a good tape recorder. So I had a professional Walkman. I don't know if you're old enough to have the, I, I, those were good, huh? The nice, the nice tapes, and you know, back in, back in the 70s and 80s, right? It was a prized thing. So I had, a, I had a Walkman Pro, and I was going around India with it. It was like my most, it's probably worth more than almost anything else I had. Probably everything I had together. And I met him, and he was, we were just talking, and we were kind of friendly, and he, he, uh, you know, he was like, well, this is, this is a good project, but I'm not getting good recordings, and, you know, I kind of, and he was really devoted. So I gave him, I gave him, my, uh, I gave him the Walkman. And then uh, many years later, I ran into him. And he was incredible, his gratitude was amazing. He just, he had gotten all these good recordings and they were saved and some of the things that, you know, that he couldn't get them anymore. And, and it was just, it wasn't a big act for me. I didn't really need my, I didn't have to listen. I was there to do spiritual work, not to listen to the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin, you know? So it was, it was okay. It was okay that I didn't, they didn't have my music so much. Uh, but that's something, and in the connection, it was something that buoyed a basic quality of goodness in humanity, just like it was, it worked. So another, here's another example where I was also in India, a different time, and uh, I gave, uh, there was a German monk there, and he had had his watch stolen. So I gave him my watch, my nice, I don't know if it was a Seiko or something. It worked. So I gave it to him, and then I was over, I, I lived for a bunch of years after that, and I, I couldn't get a watch that worked. I kept buying watches, and they wouldn't work. They would be like, the time would be really off, and it was a pain. So I don't know if that worked out quite as well. The second one. And then the last example is a little bit ongoing. And I think I've actually, uh, there's a couple of friends I have uh, where I think I've scared them away from coming over. Because I have a reputation if you come over to my house that you're going to leave with tea or with a thermos or a teapot or something. I like tea. Not a lot of different kinds of tea. I'm gonna <laughs> uh, that, so I, I, give, I give away a lot. I like, I like to. And I also have the bad side. I have a tendency to buy more than I need. But I really love to give, so I give away all these gifts. And I remember one person who returned a gift I'd given uh, to her, which was kind of expensive, and it's just sitting around now. And then uh, avoiding coming over, and I was like, huh. Maybe that's not, such, uh, that's not such good giving. So giving has to be appropriate, too, right? And I noticed, and here's the, here's the important part in terms of wisdom, that I noticed and I struggle with it, that I've become really attached to being someone who's known as being generous. I have. It's like part of my identity. And when people don't receive it, it's not received well, or it's, it's not appropriate, sometimes it's not. It's not socially appropriate to, to, to give more than is you know, appropriate. Uh, then I get upset. And I realized, that's my ego. 
It's my big, my, our minds are shameless in anything in practice. Whatever you want to do and cultivate, they're going to take it for their own and then claim it. Sure, you can be the most generous person in the world, but I'm actually going to be the most generous person in the world. Right? So we, we create a separate sense of, so that's, in a, so that's getting attached. So that's not wisdom. So generosity in itself is a conditioner for wisdom, and it's also an expression. But our minds are kind of shameless, so anything that we attach to. You can do it with meditation. You can do it with generosity. You can do it with anything. So we have to watch that. But I would say, actually, in summary, I'd actually, I think it's a f- much more fulfilling way to live, to look for opportunities, to have that eye towards, towards giving, and then seeing what it does to our hearts. And this is different than social lubricant giving and you know, all the different ways that we give socially and we're calculated and all that. Right? You know the difference. So it's actually considered in giving, there are different, in the Buddhist uh, schema, there are different ways of giving. And one is called uh, queenly or kingly giving, which, was, which, which is without a sense of uh, wanting to get anything in return. And then the scale goes down <laughs> to, you know, very kind of very manipulative. Oh, here's a great gift. You know, I'm going to get that in the future. And if I don't, I'm going to hold it, you know, all that, right? So, <laughs> so the motivation is very, very important. And it's the same in receiving. Okay. So when it's, when it's appropriate and genuine, then... Generosity creates the conditions for gratitude. And gratitude, as I mentioned earlier, creates the conditions for generosity. So all that I received, so when I was a a monk in Thailand and I received alms from people I'd go, you know, just to the villages, they were poor people, but they'd give me rice and that's what I lived on, other food, and that's what I lived on to sustain my practice. And I really, I received this nourishment I needed. So part of my heart, and this is, was that I wanted to practice in a way that would naturally give back. I wanted to be a good practitioner. In the same way that when my mom, you know, kind of blessed me when I went off. I was like, no, I want to do, I want to, I want to receive, this is a generosity. And the financial that I received as well. The financial support to be able to do this. Even though, I don't know if they'd give it to me if they knew what I was going to do with it. But... <laughs> My grandparents. Uh, actually, there was no strings. There was no strings, actually. Okay, as best they could. So that sense of wanting just naturally to give back, that symbiotic relationship is, is very, very powerful. And on the, on the gratitude part, when we're grateful, it's actually an act of generosity to ourselves. It's a powerful conditioner for our hearts to be able to open and to settle. So just explore this for yourself to see, if it, to see if when we really experience that simple sense of gratitude that it is generosity and it nourishes our life. So um, uh, Larry Rosenberg, who actually for many, he, he always gave this talk the night before Thanksgiving, and he asked me to do it this year because he's, he's cut back. But he sent me this nice uh, thing yesterday, which was about a study that was done in, in uh, on uh, gratitude, and <clears throat> let's see, doctor, some doctor, Morali Dori Swami, head of the Biological um, 
psycho biological psychology at Duke said, if thankfulness were a drug, it would be the world's best-selling product with a health maintenance indication for every major organ system. Mood neurotransmitters, serotonin, I won't go into all that. Reproductive hormones, social bonding hormones, cognitive and pleasure-related neurotransmitters, dopamine, all kinds of stuff. Cardiac and EEG rhythms, blood pressure, and blood sugar even. So they did a study where they, um, they had people keep a journal, do a writing journal. And they were just asked, it was 15 minutes a day, and they were just asked to write, one of the groups would just write about things they were complaining about. Okay? So things like, uh, they were called hassle groups. Writing about taxes, hard to, f hard to find parking, burn my dinner. Okay? Every day they were just asked, I think it was a two-week period, you can look at this study for more details. Um, just they were asked to do that. It was just 15 minutes a day. For, I think it was a couple weeks, but I'm not sure. And then there was another group that was asked to do the opposite. So the grateful group. Like writing about, I think, sunset through the clouds, the chance to be alive, the generosity of friends, etc. And what did they find out? What were the results? The group feeling, let's see. The, the gratitude group reported feeling better about their lives as a whole and were a full 25% happier than the hassled group. They reported fewer health complaints and were now exercising an average of 1.5 hours more per week. <laughs> so you didn't think this was a pep talk for taking care of ourselves. <laughs> so uh, Rick Hansen, who's the neuro, neuropsychologist, says the, neur the neurons that fire together wire together. And then he just goes on into a description of how gratitude creates these positive neurons to fire. And then the last quote from this is that uh, another uh, Robert Emmons, who is a PhD, writes, in the face of demoralization, so we'll get to this in a little bit, gratitude has the power to energize. In the face of brokenness, gratitude has the power to heal. In the face of despair, gratitude has the power to bring hope. In other words, gratitude can help us to cope with hard times. And then he gives, then there's some recommendations, how to do this, say grace, keep a, di a, a daily gratitude journal, share the love, remember mortality. So remembering, you know, to be thankful for each day. So that's interesting, because this is an angle on it that just says, if you practice gratitude, it works for you. It works for the quality of your life, and obviously, naturally, for the quality of those in your life. So let's break it down just a little bit more um, in terms of just different aspects or different layers of our life where perhaps you know, we, could, we, we can look at being grateful. And one is simply just the material things in our lives, right? physical place, food, shelter, um, warmth, a decent climate, all the things that are just basic necessities on a physical level. And just like even as I speak, just relaxing into that for ourselves. And then 
Another level is our connection with living beings <coughs> and the living world. So with family, with pets, with the natural world. So feeling like there's that level we can touch the living world, not just the material, objectifiable world, but all the, all the beings in it, that how sustaining and nourishing it is. And there's the level of just uh, being in our bodies and having our senses working to be able to see, to hear, to smell, to taste, to touch. Just very, very basic things that we often take for granted, don't we? Until we have wake-up calls. That's one reason why mortality was in here. We don't know. So what do we have? So just being alive. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, another, another one is uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, the wonderful Vietnamese Zen master has. You have to learn how to appreciate, he calls it the non-toothache. So just appreciate when our life is not full of problems. <laughs> you notice there's a tendency to be kind of incline ourselves to be kind of drama kings and queens a little bit. Yeah, just there's the natural, maybe not you, I'll speak for myself. <laughs> but just that when... And we know it sometimes after we've, let's, let's say we've had a, a toothache, right? Or we've had pain and then it goes away. For a short period, we usually appreciate it. And then we usually lose that. So there can, that can really be a practice of gratitude. It's like what's working versus what's not working, right? And then the last level I, that I think was just kind of convenient to break it down in is... Um, the fulfillment that comes, and this is through practice, through really just bring full care and attention into a moment, into any aspect of our life, and how that enhances it. So when I was a monk in Thailand, I, I was talking about the food. It wasn't very tasty, generally. It was like, you know, okay, I don't want to go there. But it's like sometimes, well, yeah, okay. So anyways, there was sometimes it was like fish paste and rice, and then the sweets, I have a bowl, and then they all get mixed together in the bowl and you eat it and it, it wasn't taste wise you can find a lot better places in Cambridge okay? a lot better places um, but what I found which is so astonishing to me at the time is some of the meals that I'd eat when I was doing pra- intensive practice just one meal a day they would be so delicious and I couldn't figure out why and it was because the quality of attention that I was bringing into it it's like when you're in love. Doesn't food taste better when you're sharing a meal? Right? Because your heart is open. You're, you're fully there. And so whatever is cu- touching you at that moment has a whole different quality. And so that's really what our, pra- what our practice of being present can help us with, is that level. And that's a wordless kind of gratitude. You don't have to, oh, I'm grateful. That, that can take us out of the moment, actually. It's that wordless level. So that's another level that we can really um, be aware on. So how do we bring this into, what about when we're not feeling particularly uh, grateful? How many people suffer from what is classically called hungry mind or hungry ghost syndrome? That means it's never enough. And the image is like the big heads, big mouths, beings, little tiny throat and giant stomachs. It's, you know, certain, if you look at okay, some, some parts of, of, of culture, of, of consumer culture, you could make a stereotype. 
but it's like more and more and more. So in this case, they can't even digest it, right? So you're always not satisfied. So how many people suffer from hungry ghosts? I do. I can feel it sometimes. It's not enough. It's just not enough. So there are teachings to help to work with this, and gratitude is absolutely one of them, contentment. Renunciation, which is classical in sort of traditional training, one way to look at it is we just learn to be content, to touch in with a sense of enoughness to what we have. And so we relax, and then we don't, we need more when we need more, right? Something wears out, we get a new, right? But we're not, it's not that craving mind, it's not that I must have more mind. So that's one level, and then there's a practice in what are these, they're called four practices of uh, positive emotional practices that can be cultivated of loving kindness, compassion, of uh, sympathetic joy and equanimity. And the third one is taking joy. Joy in the, the happiness and the success and the, like the connection that, that we and others have. In a certain way, it can be a gratitude practice. So when we do that, it can be a way of kind of an, a dynamic way of counteracting. But it's not an easy practice. It's actually one of the hardest to practice because we're very competitively driven and you know, wanting more and achieving and growing. And we can, we can lose that sense of joy that comes when we step out and really resonate with the joy in things in ourselves and others where it is working. So these are ways that we can kind of overcome that inner stinginess. So how do we practice? The last part is how do we practice in uh, tough times? How does this help us? Well, it, as the study was showing, it gives us inner inner buoyancy and resilience. And I've, as, as someone, as I mentioned when I was introduced, I, you know, I teach at a center in, in uh, Newburyport when I'm not traveling and teaching other, other places. And it's been very sad to me. I can fall into it too, but sad to me about some people that have practiced for quite a long time. And something comes on the news, there's some pr- been some pretty dramatic, graphic, uh, very unpleasant, horrible things uh, at the different levels of becoming internally a real victim of it. Even though it's not happening to us, there's a certain stressor that happens. But just playing it over again and again and having our own personal worlds rattled and not taking care of our own hearts and minds, which is different than being indifferent. So I got some information um, from one of the places I teach recently that said uh, stress, 10% of Stress is the actual event, and 90% is how we interpret it. And I haven't seen the studies, but it's, it's, it's usually the information is really good from this source. So I, I, don't, I don't know that, you know, I'm following it back. But that, to me, was pretty startling. So this is a way of reframing our interpretive overlays on experience. It's choosing. Is the, half glass, is the glass half full or half empty? Well, it is what it is from the glass's point of view. But it can make a real difference for who's perceiving it. So these, these practices, are, they seem like oh, gratitude and generosity. They're actual real reminders that we have choice and we can train this choice. And it actually makes a difference. So in tough times, it can give us, it can help us to kind of change the channel and to reframe, not in a way that ignores, it doesn't ignore the pain, 
When we have loss, it doesn't ignore the loss, but it helps us to hold it in a way where it doesn't take, doesn't like suck all the air out of the room. It's part, it gives us a more, a more open, compassionate, we see other parts of it. We see other parts. We, you know, we can sometimes see the silver lining just naturally because we're seeing a wider range and we're appreciating a, a, a bigger frame of experience. And we learn to just, we learn to use the gratitude and generosity as a support and an expression, but a support for being present. So it's how I started in the traditional training. You use it as a support so you can actually, from that place, touch in and be nourished by being present. So calming and steadying, the breath. How many times, how many people have suffered loss in the last year? How many times have you used just simply coming into the immediacy of the moment, taking a breath, a step, touching in with something in the immediacy, mindfulness, calming energy, to help to create a little peace and also a frame where we hold it a little differently. So insight, really, it means to see clearly things as they are, but there's a natural, more calmer, there's a natural compassion in that too. How do people experience that? Like when you're really present, you're just, there's a holding that happens. There's a bigger space in the heart and the mind that happens in that. So these are invitations to create the conditions where this is much more likely to happen. So I, um, I'll read part of, a, part of a poem that I, that I wrote. I had a lot of loss earlier in the year. And uh, I wrote, I do not know what life will bring next spring as the leaves fall this autumn. This fleeting world is a thing of beauty even as it dies. And then I had some losses. And then the last part of those was, my cat died too, taken down by a wilder beast. I don't know what life will bring next spring, yet here now the leaves still fall, meandering downward through the brisk open air crimson and gold surround me. The warm cup of tea I sip and hold in my hand holds me. Get it? <laughs> so that's what the invitation is. Right? So there's that, just that, so there's a natural buoyancy thing coming we're being held and we're being nourished. So I was expressing gratitude for, for nature just naturally and for the tea, and then being present with it. And so I was actually being held by the quality of that, even though there was loss. It's not, the Buddhist path is not to reject, it's not to, but not to indulge, it's to allow ourselves in a way to be more fully human, to just really, to, to embrace and to let things move. And so these, these, these are powerful ways to um, condition this humanness. I was teaching at the Omega Institute um, last month, and... Uh, it, was a, it was a strong emotional time, and I'm just, one sitting I was leading, it was a five-day retreat, um, I had tears going down my face because there was just a lot going on. I didn't tell them, I didn't tell them what was going on, and I didn't, like, you know, it, was, it, it, didn't, it wasn't a big deal. But at the end, and I, I've taught there for many, many years, a lot of people had kind of emotional openings that they don't usually have. And 
I thought I was, I felt very good because I was like, wow, you, you actually held a space of your own vulnerability without making a big deal about it that enabled others to do it too. So I think that there's something that in this is actually very wholesome for our healing and our grieving process and our holding the tough stuff in life, just quite naturally. So the last thing, actually, I said that before, but the last thing I want to do is just talk about my, uh, the, the gratitude that maybe we should have started here, but I think it's a good place to finish, which is for, um, especially in the Dharma, and a lot of this has been gratitude for Dharma, the last part, for what it, how it changes our hearts and our minds and our, as we're living our lives, is the sense of continuity. And that, like, what I've learned didn't come from, I learned it from someone. Like Larry Rosenberg, who, you know, was my main mentor in this, in this uh, tradition. And he had teachers, and I had other teachers in the Tibetan tradition and the Zen tradition. And they're all, we're all, it's their lineages and energies and ways of holding and holding up space where people can see differently and touch different qualities in their hearts and minds. This has been going on for an awful long time. It's quite beautiful, actually. You know, in the Buddhist communities, they're the longest extant communities like that have the same form of any societies in the world. 2,600 years in this similar form. And so they're trying to hold something. There's nothing, and that's in the monks and the but they're not, I'm not saying that's, that's something that's, um, it has its own power, but it, I'm speaking to the continuity, generationally things being passed down, and the gratitude when we receive from that. So it can be on this dharmic level, and all that's come to create this place, and this space, and these conditions, because they're really against the stream of busy society, aren't they? They really are. They're giving an opportunity for the heart to grow and change in a way that's quite, it's quite unique, wouldn't you say? And it's not just exclusive to this. It's, there's other, other flavors of it. So there's that level that, for me, this empowers a commitment to kind of going to working with these qualities, to taking Thanksgiving seriously in a way. And so that's one level of it. But it's also our, where we've received each one of us. And we'll open it up when I start a discussion very soon. But where have we received those kind of People have showed us a possibility. They've, they've uh, mentored, or just through their actions we've been around, they've showed us a possibility for an unfolding in our life that we're grateful for. Teachers, friends, lovers, I don't know, wherever, wherever it comes from. Even people we haven't met. So this is a real, and traditionally, we can think of our ancestors, too, even though they're imperfect. Often we're all involved with imperfect relationships, but really honoring those connections, those lineage connections for ourselves personally as well can be very powerful. Okay. So um, I think that's good enough. Okay. I guess the last thing I'll just say is one of my teachers in India, Manindra, who I, I lived in Calcutta, um, I think it was 87, for about six months. And uh, I used to, he was, I think, Joseph Goldstein's first teacher. And uh, I never, I didn't know about the Western Dharma when I went over there. I didn't know about the scene. So I just, I, I worked with him for six months. And I used to bring him his japatis in the morning. And we'd have these wonderful conversations. And his joy of being present was so exquisite that it like left an imprint 
in my heart that I think is just carried through. <laughs> I'm incredibly grateful for it. And he used to say, he'd say, if you take care of the Dharma, then it'll take care of you. So I hope you get by now that practicing orienting towards generosity and gratitude, authentic, is a very simple, engaged way to learn to create the conditions and to express those conditions in action of a heart and a mind that has resources and has connections that are, can be quite, quite extraordinary and are really worth, uh, worth giving thanks for. Okay? Great. So thank you. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.